Barnabas and Julia Hoffman have returned to their own time, back from their terrifying trip to 1995, but back with the knowledge that before 1970 ends, there will be a catastrophe which will end the Collins family forever, leaving only terror at Collinwood. Daytime Gothic is here. It's a charity magazine celebrating dark shadows, and you can now order this magazine. Proceeds benefit Macmillan Cancer UK. The magazine is comprised of 120 full-color pages of interviews, features, fiction, artwork, and photographs. I wrote an article for the zine myself about 10 gothic tales that could have been used in Dark Shadows had the series continued. I will post a link to the order form in the show notes. Be sure to check it out, and you can also go to the Dark Shadows news page over on Twitter or on Facebook, and you can find out more information about it. Be careful, my friend, where you tread, for I warn you now, there are spoilers ahead. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. Tis I, your hostess, Danielle, a.k.a. Penny Dreadful, and I am joined by two wonderful guests today. I cannot wait to dive into this storyline with them. Returning to Terror at Collinwood is Stephen R. Shutt, who you heard in the Grayson Hall episode. Steve works as a bibliographic assistant at a large academic library in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's been a classic horror and Dark Shadows fan since childhood and has written for such publications as Unsung Horrors and Midnight Marquee, among others. And a first-timer here at Terror at Collinwood is David Melville Wingrove. Steve brought David to my uh, attention uh, when he sent me a link to David's wonderful lecture, Demons, Doubles, and Dark Companions, The Self and Other in Gothic Literature, which I I greatly enjoyed. Uh, David is a scholar and writer based in Edinburgh. He wrote his undergraduate thesis at Harvard University on Durrell and the Myth of the City in the Alexandria Quartet. His life since then has included language teaching in Spain, touring theater in Ireland, and journalism in Romania. He now teaches both literature and film studies at the University of Edinburgh. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. So, Great to be here. Oh, it's my, it's my pleasure to have you both here. Thank you for taking the time to do it. I know um, there's a bit of a time difference. Uh, you're you're over in Scotland right now, and uh, and Steve and I are here in Massachusetts. So uh, both uh, very spooky locations. We're haunt, haunted New England and haunted Edinburgh. So it's it's the perfect combination of of terror here for for this episode. Uh, so. Steve, when you were on the Grayson Hall episode, uh, you talked a bit about your background with Dark Shadows and how you got into it. Um, But I'd also like to give David the opportunity to talk to us a little bit about how he first discovered all things Dark Shadows and Gothic. So tell us a little bit about that, if you would, David. I was probably the classic 60s Dark Shadows kid. I was six, seven years old. I'd come home from primary school just in time for Dark Shadows. It was always a bit of a rush. And the real challenge was I wasn't allowed to watch it. 
my mother and my grandmother had decided it would frighten me and give me nightmares and they flatly forbade me to watch it. So what I used to do, I'd go into the living room, I'd turn on the TV with the sound really, really low and I'd sit right up against the TV and I'd keep one ear open in case I heard footsteps in the hallway outside. And if I did, I'd switch over really quickly to some Disney program about a chipmunk who lived in the woods and ate nuts or whatever. So <laughs> it, my viewing of Dark Shadows was very, very sketchy because it all had to be done in secret. But even then, what my parents didn't realize is that Dark Shadows didn't frighten me at all. School was scary. Having to add numbers was scary. Having to kick a ball was terrifying. I just thought Dark Shadows was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I especially loved Barnabas Collins. I, I, I was besotted with this tall, dark, exotic man. I tell you the writing was on the wall even at the age of six. Um, a little <laughs> tidbit. Um, today, my life partner of 28 years is tall, dark, with pale skin. He comes from Romania and he has vaguely pointed teeth. I don't <laughs> think he's a vampire. I think I would have found out by now. But in essence, I grew up and married Barnabas Collins. So it really is the Dark Shadows happy ending. Are there any mirrors in the house? That's it. <laughs> there are, yes. And he looks better in them than I do. So bang up that theory. Oh, wonderful. No, wait. Yo, so you were, you grew up in, uh, in Canada. You were. I did. Uh, yes. So did, was Dark Shadows air? Was it like right on the border of the US? Because I'd heard. Well, mm-hmm. That's that's the weird thing that uh, probably in the 60s as today, 90% of Canada's population lives within an hour's drive of the US border. Mm-hmm. So you know, even you know, even on Vancouver, I was on the southern tip of Vancouver Island okay. near Victoria, we got all the American channels. So Canadian TV didn't have to buy Dark Shadows because everybody who wanted to watch it could watch it anyway. Um, so yeah, Dark Shadows was a thing in Canada. It wasn't in the UK. I don't think it was ever broadcast here. When the Tim Burton film was released in 2012, they actually released a box set of the episodes of Dark Shadows where Barnabas Collins first appears because they realized nobody in the UK knew what Dark Shadows was, nobody knew who Barnabas Collins was. And so they had to create an audience for the film basically out of nowhere. And they seemed to manage to do that. And it was when that box set came out, that was the first time I'd seen Dark Shadows since I was seven or eight. It was like (laughs) plunging back into my own childhood. And I'd forgotten that in Dark Shadows, there was this little boy called David who seemed to be besottedly in love with Barnabas Collins. And it all came flooding back to me because of course, David, he had this roundish face as I had. He had floppy hair as <laughs> I did in those days. He, he, The actor David Hennessy was a few years older than me, but it was basically like watching myself in this show with Barnabas Collins. It was just uncanny. 
And it was watching those episodes again as an adult. I thought, my God, now I know why I was so obsessed. I couldn't quite remember why I was, but seeing, especially the interaction between little David Collins and the, you know, the, the dark, you know, menacing, glamorous Barnabas Collins, I got it. And I just thought, you know, that's what set the pattern for my future life. That's probably why I'm married to the man I'm married to today. You know, many other reasons, of course, but I think that's one of them. That's that's amazing. <laughs> I love that. David, I'm just wondering what your husband is going to think when he hears <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, he'll hear a very, very edited version. <laughs> We're just going to fast forward. <laughs> he's, he's not a Dark Shadows fan. Oh, really? Oh. No, oh, no, no, no. Um, no, well, again, he's from Romania, and people in Romania find the whole gothic vampire thing rather embarrassing. Really? Because people, oh, oh, yeah, people all over the world read and read Dracula and watch Dracula movies, and they fit, or, or, or see all these hammer horror movies set in Transylvania, and they think that's what Romania is. And that's not what Romanians think their country is at all. They just don't get it and they don't get the obsession of all these crazy foreign people who come <laughs> to Romania looking for vampires because for them it's just where they live and they find it all a bit embarrassing uh-huh I would imagine so I mean it's just this fictionalized version of Romania of Transylvania uh, mm. in these films and that's obviously not the reality um was dark shadows instrumental in in prompting you to pursue an interest in the gothic because i know you've lectured a lot on on the supernatural on the gothic uh and as a scholar you teach film and uh, including gothic horror film cinema mm -hmm. and, like it was dark shadows part of that in terms of inspiring you it must have been. It was uh, it was the first gothic horror-related thing I'd ever seen in my life. I'm fairly convinced I saw Dark Shadows before I saw The Addams Family, before I saw The Monsters, before I saw old Hammer horror movies on TV. And I was absolutely besotted with it. I just thought it was the most hypnotically beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, if I had to pinpoint where my interest in all things Gothic began, it must have been Dark Shadows, because where else would it have been? You know, I wasn't taken to see Gothic horror movies in the, in the cinema. You couldn't get into those in Canada if you were under 18 anyway. They were very, very strict about that. So it must have been you know, my, for, you know, my forbidden childhood watching of Dark Shadows. Sure. Thank you for talking about the beauty of Dark Shadows, David, because I don't hear people speak about that very often. But in Catherine Lee Scott's first book, My Scrapbook Memories, I've always remembered she quoted one of the production crew people, somebody involved with the lighting or it wasn't Cy Tomashoff, but it was somebody involved with the videography side of it talking about how they they actually tried to make it look really beautiful and sometimes mm -hmm. they tried to like create I think that this what the quoted Catherine's book was like a renaissance painting or something mm -hmm. like that and when I was re-watching the um, summer of 1970 episodes again I was just thinking why don't people like this it's really beautiful to look at yeah, like yeah. you know there's this scene where Quentin is in Daphne's abandoned bedroom and the light like shimmers on the fake cobwebs but it's a really mm -hmm. gorgeous lighting effect and 
nothing on daytime or for that matter night. I was watching it at the original time and there was nothing on TV back then that looked like that. And then in the 70s, after the show went off the air, I watched all those evening, some of them were from the Brian Clemens thriller series that had that kind of video gothic aesthetic because there was nothing else like it on TV at the time. Yeah. And they used like the gel lighting uh, in some of the mm-hmm. scenes, um, just the, the atmospheric use of the fog combined with Cy Tomashoff's sets. The camera works, if you will, some of those early episodes too, the black and white episodes, they would, uh, in, the, in the very early ones, they would get low to the ground just to show off uh, Collinwood, the majesty of Collinwood. I mean, they they did some amazing things in that studio, uh, like nothing else on on, on television. Absolutely, uh, at that time, or I would say even since. I mean, given the budget and the time constraints they had, what they were able to pull off is is quite remarkable. Um, yeah. So. Uh, we're here to talk about today the summer of 1970 storyline. Uh, now, as Steve mentioned, you know, there are a lot of fans who either don't like this storyline or don't even, uh, it doesn't even register uh, for a lot of people, I think. And I don't know if that's because Dark Shadows, uh, when it was syndicated, this storyline was not aired after parallel time we didn't see a whole any of that uh until the mpi uh home videotapes came out and the sci-fi channel started airing it um but even then uh people still you know they talk about 1840 they talk about 1995 they even talk about 1841 parallel time but this summer of 1970 storyline is often um either ignored or just kind of poo-pooed uh and there's some really great stuff in this storyline i I have gone on record as saying I love all of the Dark Shadows storylines. I can always find something to love in every Dark Shadows storyline. Is this the strongest storyline? Uh, iconic like uh, 1795 or 1897 or Introduction of Artemis? No, I would say not. But it is a really compelling storyline in a lot of ways. Uh, there are a lot of cool things about it. Um, it. It's to the point where I was where I was emailing the two of you guys, even the name of the story, like everyone has kind of a fan name that's become the official, unofficial name of a storyline, you know, what people say, the Leviathans or, uh, you know, 1795, you know, immediately what that is. But this storyline, it's, there's, it's so nebulous. I mean, I've, I've, in, in ye old fandom days, I remember always being referred to as summer of 1970 or in Warren Odson's articles, he, uh, causality at Collinwood summer of 1970 hauntings but some of the other names people have referred to this storyline by are ghosts of gerard and daphne gerard styles destruction of collinwood or as patrick mccray calls it ragnarok which is a fun title for for this storyline um but um i want to talk about this like where did you both see this storyline uh when it originally aired i know steve i think you said you did mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and feelings yeah. about it when you first saw it um, well, what I, I actually remember watching it at the time because I found it really compelling. I also remember watching Parallel Time really clearly, which was the preceding storyline. And I missed the uh, flash forward time travel to 1995 because we were on a family vacation. So I, I saw like a little bit of one episode and I was like, Carolyn is old and crazy. What's going on? And it was like a really blurry 
black and white. Uh, it was like, I think, a TV in a hotel. We didn't normally stay in hotel rooms, but for some reason we were in one. But I remember being very intrigued by the hauntings of the summer of 1970. And um, one of the lines that really stuck in my head, it's just so weird, like what sticks in your head so many years later. But I could never forget this bizarre scene where uh, David and Hallie, who are both too old to be in a yeah. playroom with a bunch of kids' toys. Definitely, um, yes. <laughs> when I was watching, I was, I guess, 13 that year. Um, it didn't really register to me, like, why are these teenagers in this kid's toy room? And Hallie is suddenly overtaken by the ghost of Carrie. And David notices her affect has gotten really strange. And he's like, Hallie, will you stop talking like a weirdo? And yeah. Hallie, and Carrie's response is, how strange. I know the word weird, but the addition to the letter O to the end <laughs> yes. makes it quite bizarre. <laughs> He's like, Hallie, knock it off. Yes. Like, I don't know what you're talking. And it was just so weird. And one thing that I want to say is, um, like, from my memory, I hadn't watched the storyline in about 25 years. In fact, I, until a couple of years ago, i been taking a break from watching Dark Shadows. And uh, so, yeah, it's been like 25 or even 27 years since I last sat through all of this. And um, I remember I actually found Kathy Cody's acting to be pretty good in a lot of it. Uh, I guess as we get into it, I'll talk about the strengths and the weaknesses of mm -hmm. the storyline. Okay. Uh, and David, did you watch this when it first aired, the storyline? I'm fairly sure I didn't. And the reason for that is um, my best friend from childhood, who's still a friend today, um, she's told me that growing up, she had a huge crush on Kate Jackson as, um, as Daphne. And when she told me this, I said, wait, Kate Jackson was in Dark Shadows. I didn't remember seeing any of her episodes at all. And I think what it is, by the time Kate Jackson came onto the show, I'd moved from going to a school that was near my family's house to going to a school that was some distance away. And I just wasn't home in time. Yeah. So I missed all those episodes the first time round. It was a revelation to me that Kate Jackson from Charlie's Angels had even been on Dark Shadows. So no, I didn't see these episodes at all. I'm watching them for, well, or have just watched them for the first time now. I'm now fairly well into 1840, which mm -hmm. I also hadn't seen before. I but see. no, they were new for me. Okay, yeah. I hadn't, uh, when they were airing it in syndication, like I said, they stopped it at partway through parallel time. But in the interim, I picked up my scrapbook, Memories of Dark Shadows, which had a synopsis of the entire series in it. So I, that's where I found out Kate Jackson had been in Dark Shadows. And then I got into the fandom and or at right around that time, 86, uh, 87, and I picked up the Dark Shadows Concordance 1840, which was published by Kathy Resch. Uh, and this, to, my mind always goes to this when I'm thinking about these storylines, because I was enraptured by this book uh, and just the uh, illustrations by the amazing uh, late, great Warren Odson. Mm -hmm. He was a, a brilliant 
brilliant illustrator uh, and uh, and writer too. But I, I just these uh, summaries of, of the episodes really amazing. Uh, the 1840 Concordance. So that was my introduction to that story in depth, diving in, and then I got to watch it finally when it came out on MPI Home Video when they were releasing those episodes, and I was very excited because at that time when these episodes were not being aired, I mean that was a, a a quest, you know, the fans really wanted to see these episodes, but they were so expensive. World Vision, the syndicator, was charging a lot of money for that last year of Dark Shadows, and no station was going to pay what they were asking. So uh, we kind of thought we weren't going to see them until it was announced that MPI was going to release the entire series. So we got to see that finally, and the pre-Barnabas episodes as well, which also had not, those 10 months of the show had not been seen since they first aired in uh, 1966, 67. So um, this storyline it's really there are really two storylines happening here two major storylines we have the hauntings at Collinwood of uh, Gerard and Daphne and Tad and Carrie so we have these uh, four ghosts who are active at Collinwood and we also have the Sebastian Shaw astrologer and Roxanne uh, the vampire uh, storyline and there's some unknown link that's going on here between Roxanne and, and Gerard there it's hinted at that there's some some connection there but we don't really they never really explain that's that's I think that's the, the tagline for this storyline they never really explain anything should just be the tagline for this whole, because there are all these strange mysterious ideas that they put out there things like the you know the java queen and the pirate crew and all of this kind of stuff rose cottage the, uh what's the importance of the playroom the carousel all of this stuff which is really cool but then just never gets explained um mm. because when they get to 1840 they kind of drop a lot of that or they just barely touch on it and kind of move on from that um so and we we can explore that as we talk about this so i'm just going to read this first block uh, of text here for the storyline and then we can, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about it. Um, so, uh, and I pulled this from Wikipedia. Upon returning to 1970, Barnabas Collins and Dr. Julia Hoffman find there is now a girl named Hallie Stokes, Professor Timothy Elliott Stokes' niece, living at Collinwood. Barnabas discovers that a man named Gerard Stiles lived in Collinsport back in 1840 and that the playroom in 1995 does not exist and is currently a closet. Barnabas and Julia find... <laughs> That there is going to be a solar eclipse, which is one of the omens that Carolyn started in 1995 told them about. At the peak of the eclipse, David Collins and Hallie hear music coming from the closet and find it now contains the playroom. They encounter the ghost of Daphne Harwich. Carolyn, Maggie Evans, Quentin Collins, and David go on a picnic and David takes photos, hence the second omen. David develops the photos he shot and feels there is a strange figure in one of the pictures. The ghost of Gerard watches Carolyn and David looking at the photograph. Julia feels that Gerard is haunting the house. She and Barnabas ask Quentin about the ghosts at Collinwood. However, he is unable to help them at the sight of Daphne. She leads him to her grave and is about to stab him in the back, but his concern for her appears to cause her to change her mind about killing him. So... Barnabas and Julia come back. They they come back with all these the six omens, the six clues that that uh, Mad Carolyn in the future told them about. He, they come back to 1970 and they want to prevent the destruction of Collinwood. I think the most one of the frustrating things about this storyline that fans find, and I, I can see everyone knows that Collinwood is going to be destroyed, and yet uh, nobody, everybody's keeping secrets. No one is 
talking about, you know, David and Hallie fall under the sway of these ghosts. Uh, Quentin also falls into Daphne's thrall and nobody tells anybody anything. They're all afraid to talk about these things, even though they know the destruction of Collinwood is coming. So it's a little, it's frustrating. It's like you want them to say something and, and they don't. Um, but that said, I think it's an interesting storyline. And Steve, you pointed out some really great inspirations for the storyline because everyone points to Turn of the Screw. Uh, they're doing the Turn of the Screw again. But it, it really, there's more to it than Turn. There's a little bit of Turn of the Screw with Gerard. I, I can see the male and female spirits and the boy and the girl who are teenagers, not children. But there's a little bit of that. But you also pointed out uh, Mr. James and Oliver Onion. Not uh, we were talking before. We thought it was Oliver Onions, but you found it's just, the pronunciation is is not Onions. It's a different pronunciation. Can you talk a little bit about these inspirations? Oh yeah. Well, I'm sure that there's more to excavate um, because on the DVDs there's a an interview with Jim Storm where he recalls Dan Curtis hiring a speed reader. Yep. To read massive amounts of gothic and supernatural horror <laughs> literature mm -hmm. and short stories and that was of course one of the components of the infamous horror rolodex yes very <laughs> we're very curious about and we we want, wonder if anybody has the horror rolodex yes oh what a fine that would be the, hor the horror rolodex <laughs> yes <laughs> Like how were some of these things even summarized? The Oliver, so apparently the family name of Oliver Onions was pronounced Anions, which is like in Britain, if you have the family name Chamonley, it's actually pronounced Chumley, and there are numerous other things that, well, I mean, English is a much older language than mm -hmm. we sometimes are aware of. But the Oliver Onions story, the Beckoning Fair one, which was also a key component to the Night of Dark Shadows script, and it was um, dramatized for a, a series called Journey to the Unknown that did air, I think, on the CBS network in the U.S. in 1968, although it was produced in England by Hammer Studios. It was one of those series that would be done in the U.K. where they would have an American guest star in each episode to try to put it out in other markets, not just the U.S., but some other, like one of the episodes had uh, Chad Everett <laughs> as the guest star. And the uh, Beckoning Fair one, I, and so I always thought, oh, Sam Hall must have watched the Beckoning Fair one, which he might have done uh, when it was shown on Journey to the Unknown, but he also just might have read the plot synopsis in the horror Rolodex and made use of it for, because Sam had to pull the Night of Dark Shadows screenplay out very quickly, as you know. Yeah. And so it's more of a mood, really, than um, than an actual thing that happens. It's like this man whose life is slowly taken over and destroyed by this malevolent female spirit. And um David, did you say you had read it, or or you haven't had time to get around to that one? Uh, no, I um I I I'd read the Beckoning Fair one before. I managed managed to reread it yesterday. Um, but the the fascinating thing for me is that it seems to have been very much in the air at the time they made this, because there's a wonderful Italian horror movie from 1968 called A Quiet Place in the Country which is an unofficial updated adaptation of the Beckoning Fair one. Um, and I taught that 
earlier this year in my Gothic cinema class. And it's a psychedelic swinging 60s Italian Marxist horror movie starring, I'm not making this up, Franco Nero and Vanessa Redgrave, who were a famous couple then and actually got married a few, few years ago, having each of them having been with many, many other people in between. And it's, and it's a fascinating update of this old English Gothic story to Italy in the swinging 60s. And, they, and the hero, who's a writer in the original story, he's a, he's a conceptual avant-garde pop artist in the, in the film. Um, you know, the, the ghost turns out to be the ghost of a young woman uh, who, who was murdered by the uh, by the fascists during the Second World War during the occupation? Again, the director Elio Petri was a devout Marxist, so it's you know, so it's very politicized. It's um, it's it's very um, you, you, it, it's it's made politically relevant, and for me, that's the most fascinating thing about it. It's an attempt at a left wing Gothic horror movie, whereas Gothic horror tends to be quite a right-wing genre. It's, it's all about order and the establishment under threat from dark forces. And this really is an attempt at a Marxist Gothic horror movie, which seems like a total contradiction in terms. Maybe it is, but the film works. It's wonderful. So you know, whether the Dark Shadows people ever saw that, I really have no idea. And that detail of the protagonist being um, reconfigured as a painter, that's also mm -hmm. true in the uh, Hammer Studios um, mm -hmm. 1968 TV version, which was one of the things that made me think that was probably a major source for Night of Dark Shadows, because mm -hmm. Quentin Collins in Night of Dark Shadows is this painter who right. can't stop painting for some reason, Angelique mm -hmm. Collins, who's a malevolent spirit. Possibly she's pissed off because of things that she has right to be angry about mm -hmm. and uh and in the show in this storyline it's uh quentin and, and daphne the ghost of of daphne we, we never know her motivation i mean she seems mm -hmm. malevolent at times but at other times she, she's seems that she, like she loves quentin or she mm -hmm. loved quentin the first and sees this as a as sort of the reincarnation of, of quentin but um you know there's a scene where she's going to stab him in the back with a knife and then she drops the knife and, and doesn't go through with it. I, I assume these ghosts are all in sort of Gerard's power, perhaps, and resisting his his influence, uh, maybe. Uh, but you could also say she's also more uh, like Miss Jessel than Beth was as well, if we're looking at mm -hmm. Turn of the Screw again. But then we also have the two uh, M.R. James stories, where M.R. James, of course, amazing writer of, of ghost stories. So uh, we have uh, number 13 and uh, the Haunted Dolls House. So Steve, you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, I just want to say that um, mm -hmm. with the Daphne storyline, that's one of the few elements where they follow through with the foreshadowing mm -hmm. in the summer of 1970, where Quentin's in her Daphne's abandoned bedroom, mm -hmm. and he finds her diary where she wrote, "Today I must kill Quentin Collins." Yeah, and that's one of the few cases where we find out when we get to 1840 how she came to Collinwood, and we see her writing that in yes. her diary. Yeah, and um, so that's worth mentioning. Number thirteen is important because it's about a room that's a ghost, a room yeah. that 
can appear and disappear in a very perplexing fashion. And um, so, uh, David, did you get around to reading that? I did. Yes, I'd, I, I'd never read that story before. And it, you know, it made perfect sense, you know, the, the, the way you, you tied it in with Dark Shadows, because the way the playroom appears and disappears is exactly the way the hotel room appears and disappears yes. in number 13. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's almost a direct steal. It's yeah. very, very cleverly done in both the television series and the and the original story. But yeah, you can see the inspiration in M.R. James. For sure. One of the things that they, they didn't explain, and it's kind of cool that they didn't, is near the very end of the summer of 1970 storyline, Quentin, I think it's Quentin says, no, I have to go in the room first, Julia. If you try to go into the room, it'll be a closet. Yes, yeah. And yeah. they don't explain. So like one of my theories about the, the what's going on in the background that's never explained is certain people at Collinwood are the reincarnation of people who lived there in 1840. And at one point, Quentin describes David and Hallie as the astral twins yes. of Tad and Carrie. Well, I would just say that they're the reincarnations of them. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I guess maybe somebody found that phrase in a book and thought, uh -huh. worth using but so uh carolyn is the reincarnation of letitia fay and so and then quentin is the reincarnation of the 1840 quentin and so they have this special relationship to the spirits and also the the black magic or the sorcery that the spirit of gerard is practicing as part of all of this and the fact that Gerard is not just a ghost, but the ghost of a very powerful warlock who has really like warlock superpowers, kind of like in 1840, Angelique becomes like super witch. So that partly explains why people try to oppose Gerard. The only person who gets away with opposing Gerard is Letitia in the form of Carolyn. She's able to stop him from destroying Rose Cottage. And the use of the Rose Cottage dollhouse is um, perhaps a steal from the haunted dollhouse in the James story. Uh, it just, when I was watching it this time, because I had, when I watched it before, I hadn't read the haunted doll's house and I read it a few years ago. And I thought, oh, that's kind of like what happens in the haunted doll's house in mm -hmm. a way. It's it's kind of an odd story, I guess. I think there there are certainly echoes of that story uh, with the Rose Cottage uh, dollhouse and the fact that there is a real house, a real analog for for the house, just as in the haunted doll's house. He ends up finding the the ruins of, of that of the original house, etc. But I think so. Uh, and the little dolls, he sees them come to life at night, and this whole scene transpires. I can see that that might have been in the horror rolodex, and maybe they pulled some elements from that. Number thirteen. I think a hundred percent was the inspiration for the playroom. Uh, it really seems it's so on the nose, you know, it really, there are a lot of aspects to that story that it's clear, I think, that that one was the inspiration for the playroom, although they never really explain the significance of, of the playroom, mm. because you see it in 1840, at the start of 1840, but then they just kind of 
drop the whole playroom thing. Uh, Gerard must have murdered the children in that room. We also have the, the, the stairway through time also exists in that vicinity. So there's something going on with the playroom that never really gets explained. The um, carousel that oh, like yes. the, mm -hmm. the, the tune of the carousel is Gerard's theme song. So I whenever Gerard is around, you mm -hmm. hear that weird music. And I loved how when you were talking to Ray, you said talked about how absurd it was when Barnabas says, well, music is really used <laughs> to frighten <Yeah>. someone. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that, that line really hit me in the face like a ripe tomato because... <laughs> Yes. Barnabas, hello. Yes. <laughs> music box. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, but um, there's a, actually a very similar toy that shows up in Strange Paradise in early 1970s, several months before the, like half a year before it shows up on Dark oh. Shadows. And when that toy carousel suddenly starts turning and playing its song, um, that means that there's the spirit of a dead relative, but it's it's a benign spirit that nevertheless sometimes seems possibly malignant. So it's kind of ambivalent, like the Daphne spirit. And I do wonder if somebody stole the idea of a toy carousel being linked to a spirit from mm. Strange Paradise. One of my favorite shows that was produced in Ottawa, Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've never actually seen Strange Paradise. I mean, it was, since, since I've been posting a lot and writing a lot about Dark Shadows and friends in Canada have been saying, oh, David, do you remember Strange Paradise? Well, no, I don't re remember actually seeing it. Um, I may have. Um, but uh, you know, what you say about the music is fascinating because in some ways, Dark Shadows is almost Wagnerian. You know, the way in, in The Ring of the Nibelungen, every yeah. character has a musical motif that's associated with them. And you don't normally think of Dark Shadows in terms of a Wagner opera, but in the way, the, 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 the way it plays out and the way the storyline um, unfolds over time, it is almost operatic. And you have that whole thing of characters who are linked to certain musical themes. And I find that fascinating. And Anna Russell's lecture on the leitmotif of Wagner's ring cycle is mm -hmm. a must listen for those who are devoted to queen culture, because mm -hmm. Anna Russell, although she was a female, was definitely a queen. <laughs> <laughs> like what uh, Erna is saying to, to Wotan, be careful, Wotan, be careful. And then she gives birth to 13 children. <laughs> <It's>, mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, I'm going off topic. There. Oh, no, no, not at edit all. edit that out. <laughs> not at all. Um, Ro Rose Cottage also seems like a really important um, component here. But then in 1840, we see, you know, Flora Collins lives at Rose Cottage. And I guess that's where Gerard become, first becomes possessed by uh, Judah mm. Zachary. So I suppose in that sense, that's why Rose Cottage is important, but they don't really, mm. Rose Cottage is a, they make a big deal of Rose Cottage in 1995 and summer of 1970. And as you mentioned, Steve, Gerard is that ghost that's haunting Collinwood. Everyone thinks it's Gerard Stiles, aka Ivan Miller, but it's actually Judah Zachary. So give me some thought. What are your thoughts on this um, on Gerard and Daphne. Let's talk about them a little bit because these are the new antagonists, I guess, that are introduced. And so what are your thoughts on them? Uh, well, when I was watching it, I just thought 
so in Jim Storm's memoir, his uh, idiot, interview that's on the D the DVDs, the ones that mm -hmm. I have at least, um, he talks about reading for the part of Gerard to Dan Curtis, that he remembers it being that he auditioned in front of Dan. And I found myself thinking, what did they have him read? Because for the first several months, he doesn't mm. have a word of dialogue. And I just wonder like how long he spent in front of a mirror practicing those diabolical leers. Yes. He, I mean, <laughs> he had the most evil look. Yeah, the sneers. <laughs> like he was contemplating pulling the wings off flies or something. <laughs> and um, it's quite insidious and with that weird makeup that they would put on him and the weird lighting. I think nowadays probably people don't get the kind of cuisson from that kind of thing that one did back then, but it's so full-blown gothic. Oh, yeah. Aesthetic. Yeah. He's not doing anything. He's just looking and leering. And it's chilling to me, but you know, nowadays people don't think it's chilly unless somebody's eyeball is being gouged wow. out slow yeah. which yeah. that's to me, that's not horror. It's just revolting. Yeah, so, great. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Daphne is um, is really given more depth than Gerard. I think one of the weaknesses of the storyline that we're talking about is Gerard has no depth. He's just pure malignant force in a concentrated person who's almost like a cardboard cutout because all he really does is leer and then he can actually kill people with his touch whereas with Daphne her character evolves um and then towards the end of the storyline becomes human and I wanted to point out that there was a precedence in the dark shadows universe for a spirit being brought back into fleshly existence with the infamous, most evil woman of the 18th century, Danielle Roger, yes. <laughs> back from the pits of hell by Nicholas Blair, and returned to life, but only for the term of a night, yeah. under the form of Leona Eltridge, whose name was an anagram of Danielle Roger. <laughs> yes. Little did they know that Professor Elliot Stokes was well-read on the most evil women of the 18th century <laughs> and had probably been reading Rosemary's Baby because he had one of those uh, scrabble boards that he could show how the anagrams <laughs> of the names <laughs> worked out. Yeah. But but, but um, it's really like, you know, there's no precedence in any magical tradition that I know of of a spirit being brought back into corporeal existence mm. without her possessing some other human being. Yeah. So that's really a fascinating twist that they pulled on this one. And I wonder why Judah slash Gerard, want, like, I can see why he would want to return to life, like, that his his end game would be that he would be reborn. And I, I he was attracted to Daphne. He, in 1840, we saw he wanted to bring her into his, I guess, coven. Maybe he wanted to bring Daphne back, but why the kids? That's I was like, why would he want Tad and Carrie there too? That's, that one perplexes me. Well, it seems as if they had to be physically present as alive people to perform that ritual. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's so, true. That's true. Yeah. And so when they first did the ritual, they actually didn't know which was going to come back, if it was going to be mm -hmm. Daphne or Gerard. And they were terrified at the idea yeah. of Gerard coming back. But we needed to be given some kind of hint of 
why does he want all this to happen? And in the end, he just replicates what he had done before in 1840. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you presume that it was re- that he killed them out of revenge because his plan had been thwarted. But yeah. mm-hmm. but you know, the ending of it is so swift. And then immediately you're in 1840, and then all of a sudden everything has changed from what you were led to expect, which they also did when they went to 1795, although fans don't like, you know, there's a lot of clues dropped towards the end of 1967 for what we're going to see when we go back to the original time and they disregard almost all of them. So (laughs) they got away with it then because everybody loves 1795. And I think fandom is more divided, I think, on 1840. Some people really love it and some people love it somewhat and some people actively hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, David, any thoughts on, uh, on Gerard and Daphne? What really strikes strikes me again, having watched the episodes for the first time quite recently, is what how powerful both of them are, just as visual images. <laughs> the fact that they don't speak, they they're like silent film stars, and Daphne especially is very interesting because when Kate Jackson first appears and doesn't speak with the long black hair and the way she's lit and the way she's styled, she looks like one of the great gothic horror movie stars of the 60s, um, actors like Barbara Steele or Martine Bezik. Yeah. And I... You know, I expected, I, I expected watching the episodes that when she did speak, she'd have this low purring, rather sinister <laughs> voice. Come yeah. to me, children, you know, yeah. like, like Martine Bezik in sure. Seizure. And of course, when Kate Jackson finally speaks, she actually, you know, she has this you know, high, slightly whiny, rather sweet voice. She sounds like a very nice girl. And it's almost as if the character of Daphne has got to be rewritten once she opens her mouth and yeah. speaks because Kate Jackson just hasn't got that kind of voice. She can be lit to look like that sort of character. But as soon as she opens her mouth, the illusion dissolves and you've uh, and you've got to create something else, which is when Daphne becomes a sympathetic your heroine, which you didn't expect when you first see her looming there out yeah. of the dark. Um, Gerard as well is um, is a fascinating visual image. I don't know if anybody remembers um, actually, this is this is my second big man crush as a, as a boy growing up. Was um, Richard Chamberlain as Lord Byron in Lady Caroline Lamb, a, a movie from the early seventies? Yeah. And honestly, the way Richard Chamberlain is costumed and styled as Lord Byron is almost verbatim how Gerard looks in Dark Shadows. It's as if they copied you know, the, the hairstyle, the makeup, the costuming, everything. I mean, Chamberlain as Byron doesn't look at the least little bit like the historical Lord Byron as we see him in portraits. Who does he looks like? He looks like Gerard in Dark Shadows. So that I find fascinating, just how powerful the visual image is. And you, you, you were talking about Gerard's marvelous leer as he looks into the camera. I think, with respect, I think he does it a lot better than than David Selby did. When he was playing the menacing ghost, David Selby 
would come on and attempt the same leer and it didn't quite work I, I find myself saying oh come off it and his character really comes to life when he speaks I love Quentin once he starts to speak but Quentin as a ghost just leering silently out of the darkness never really worked for me Gerard does so yeah just you the two of them are wonderful, just as visual images. Gerard is terrifying. He is oh, yeah. just, mm -hmm. just he really gives off that sort of malignant presence. Although I think it would have been interesting if they had switched things. Imagine a, a very malevolent, mm -hmm. dark female spirit as the one mm -hmm. who is, you know, the one mm -hmm. who's terrified, who the kids are afraid to bring back mm -hmm. versus the, the male spirit. I think that would have been an interesting reversal and switch things up a little bit and made it a lot different from the Quentin and Beth uh, mm -hmm. sort of scenario, which everyone kind of draws uh, comparisons to between the two storylines. But Ray asked me this when I did this, the interview with Ray. We know this is really Judah Zachary, but why does he look like Gerard? Why is he presenting himself as Gerard? My, my feeling is that he's deceptive. He, it's having mm -hmm. that veneer of the person he possessed in life is going to complicate things for those mm -hmm. who are trying to thwart him. So I assume that's why he would take on the sort of appearance of Gerard in death. Any, any either of you have thoughts on that? But, but, but it's also that for, for Gerard to, you know, to lure people into his power and do yeah. what he does, he has to have a seductive surface. Sure. And the surface of Judah Zachary, as we <laughs> see it from this disembodied head floating in a jar, is not particularly seductive. True. He ain't a sexy ghost. And, <laughs> if, and, and if, he were in, if he were to come back to life in that form, he wouldn't be able to lure anybody over onto the dark side. Whereas the fascinating thing about Gerard is he actually does. Even in the 1995 storyline, he takes one look at Dr. Julia Hoffman and she's his. She's yeah. besotted. She does what he, what, he, what he tells her to, even though she doesn't want to. And she knows she shouldn't do it. And she knows she's betraying Barnabas, which... Given the fact that, as many uh, as many viewers suspect, Julia Hoffman's interest in men is probably somewhat limited, the fact that she falls immediately under the spell of Gerard really does tell you something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, the Julia and Gerard stuff. You just reminded me because somebody reminded me of Barbara Shelley this morning, um, David. Um, Barbara Shelley in the classic uh, Hammer Horror film, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Mm. Oh, is yeah. this a very straight-laced, prudish Victorian lady who, and her reactions to the feeling that Dracula is hovering around, it's very similar to how Grayson plays um, Julia's awareness of mm -hmm. Gerard's evil. Mm -hmm. But it's seductive. And it's kind of her the part of her that's inside, that's buttoned up, that's waiting to be burst out and to embrace the evil and the darkness and the glory. And um, Barbara Shelley, also a redhead, <laughs> plays it so brilliantly in Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And I, I have to like give full disclosure here as everyone, or not everyone, but people who know me know, I'm a huge Grayson Hall fan. And mm. that's one reason why this will be my one of my favorite storylines of all time, because 
uh, Grayson was in like 23 of the, I think the total of the episodes was 39 for the entire storyline, mm-hmm. or maybe it was 29. I can't remember. She's in a lot of mm-hmm. episodes. I felt bad for her actually, because she was already being heavily worked in um, parallel time. And in this one, she's like on almost, I mean, sometime in, while they were filming um, the summer of 1970, Grayson actually flew to the West Coast and did her episode of Night Gallery with Agnes Moorhead and Rachel Roberts. And there's actually a fan a fanzine um, thing where she had just come back to the studio that morning from a red-eye flight from L.A. to do Dark Shadows. And they just described her staggering around <laughs> <looking> <laughs> some coffee. And I'm like, oh, you poor lady. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's she's in it more than than Barnabas, this storyline. I'm she is, yeah. Sure. Her yeah. and Quentin um, yeah. kind of hold down the fort while others... I think they had Frid scheduled for a lot of personal mm-hmm. appearances because they were also ramping up the publicity machine for House of Dark Shadows, which started to have some screenings during this time. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, they, uh, Julia is, um, she's trying to unravel this mystery, but Quentin is starts pushing back because of his involvement with Daphne's fallen under, under Daphne's power. Um, this storyline too is the last time we're going to see, uh, sadly, the present, most of the present day characters, we will not see again, except for Elizabeth and Professor Stokes. Mm-hmm. We see Elizabeth one more time when they come back from, from 1840, but uh, Carolyn, uh, David, Quentin, Willie, uh, we, we will not, this is the last time, Mrs. Johnson, this is the last time we're going to see all of them uh, is in this last present day storyline. Sadly, we will not see them again. And of course, this is also the last time we'll see Maggie Evans and Catherine Lee Scott on Dark Shadows, one of the original cast members since day one left the show. A very sad exit. She's driven off to Windcliffe by Sebastian. And uh, reportedly, this was an inside joke that uh, Dan Curtis said Catherine was crazy to leave the show. So we had carted off to Windcliffe. The reason she left, she was getting uh, married, going to Paris, moving to Europe. Uh, So she was going to be living in Paris and hopeful that she would someday come back to the show and jump into whatever storyline was going on. But that sadly was not uh, meant to be. So yeah, goodbye to Maggie Evans. Um, You mentioned uh, David and Hallie, and I want to talk a little bit about them too, because they're, as is often the case, David is uh, always a very... uh, prominent character in a lot of these storylines where some supernatural threat is taking place and David is often at the center of what's going on and uh, again here we have David and Hallie and I agree uh, with what you said and about them being teenagers uh, in in the playroom and I kind of wish they had let them be teenagers instead of kind of Mm -hmm. having them be more in these kid roles you know they kind of should have let them be teen. I don't know do you guys have thoughts on that in in a way it seems like a pity I I don't it seems as if um Kat, you know Kathy Cody as Hallie has come in on very short notice as a replacement for um for, for Denise Nickerson mm-hmm. who played little Amy Jennings who presumably left because she got another job I know she wound up in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and playing Lolita on Broadway um 
And Amy Jennings was recognizably a little girl, and you could have believed her quite easily in that um, in in that playroom world. And you could have seen how, even though David was a bit old of it, uh, was a bit old for it, Amy Jennings could have lured him back into that um, playroom world you know, and and in, encouraged him to act younger than he is. But you're absolutely right that um, that David and Hallie both seem like teenagers. To me, it's fascinating that Hallie's alter ego is called Carrie because she reminds me so much of Sissy Spacek in Carrie, who again is visibly older than the teenage girl she's pretending to play, but she plays her so skillfully. We actually buy the character while we're watching. It's only when, you, when we stop watching, we think, what was that about? And I have very much the same reaction to Kathy Cody as Hallie slash Carrie. Um, but, but yeah, their behavior in the playroom is not really age appropriate. Um, and, and it has, it, it has elements of, you know, there was, there was a movie of great expectation, a TV movie of great expectations in the seventies where Sarah Miles, who was 30 something insisted on playing Estella, not just as an adult, which was fine, but as a little girl as well. And you just sit there and you think what? <laughs> why? Why is this evening even happening? And it's not as serious a problem in Dark Shadows. No. The, you know, the age difference isn't that big, but no. it's big enough to make us wonder what's going on. Yeah. I mean, David's only, I think, 14 mm. during, but it's still, you know, you can tell he's, and, and, and Kathy Cody is, I think, maybe 16 during the mm. story. There is a funny line where he says something to the effect of, I had a dream about you last night. And she said, a lot of boys dream about me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure they did. Which is very uh, teenage-esque, you know, so there are moments like that, but the whole playroom thing, I guess, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, uh, I think back to when I was a teenager, I guess if I found a ghost room filled with uh, old toys, I think it would be I would be fascinated by it, but I wouldn't, mm. I wouldn't be like, let's jump on the hobby horse and, yeah. <laughs> and, and play on that, you know. Mm. Uh Steve, any thoughts on on uh David uh, and uh, Hallie or Tad and Carrie here? Well, again, um they're the two who hold down the storyline along mm -hmm. with Julia and Quentin and Barnabas sometimes. You know, it's strange. Um, I hope I get back on topic, but I just have to say, I had a dream that we were doing this um, <laughs> this morning. And um, in my dream, I was saying to you, oh, I wish they brought back Hannah Stokes to help investigate the ghosts at Collinwood, because I just thought Hannah was such a fun <laughs> character. And I realized, well, they weren't going to do that because they already had Grace in there. And you mm -hmm. could only have like one fabulous middle-aged dowager <laughs> time on tv that was one of the rules you could not have an entire series about them but david and hallie um yeah I, also i love the scene where where barnabas and julia and I, maybe carolyn or somebody are in david's room and david comes in and says what is this a convention oh i love that yeah I, yes. I, yeah i always thought when they when they advertised the dark shadows festivals on um the sci-fi <laughs> channel they should have included oh that yes <laughs> that would have how did they not do that i mean that would have mm. been perfect oh my goodness yes absolutely you, uh, David, you mentioned the, uh, the silent film quality of Gerard and Daphne, and there are scenes with just the two of them alone, mm -hmm. not speaking. I yeah. love those scenes. They're so yes. eerie. 
there's these mm-hmm. two ghosts having a, a, a silent scene together. I, it's really cool. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, super, super spooky stuff. I love that. Moving on here. Uh, Elizabeth Collins started goes to see Sebastian Shaw, an astrologer, after becoming concerned that some great tragedy is coming to the Collins family. Carolyn is shocked when she meets Sebastian, who looks exactly like Jeb Hawks. She has Sebastian prepare a horoscope for her and asks him many personal questions. He decides not to complete Carolyn's horoscope when he learns that the only reason she asked him to do it was because he looks like Jeb, the third omen. So I guess this was the unfinished horoscope. At the same time, Barnabas finds Roxanne Drew, our Times version of Roxanne from the parallel time universe, who works as Sebastian's personal assistant, but she has no interest in Barnabas. Uh, unbeknownst to Barnabas, Roxanne is also a vampire, and she targets Maggie to feed on her blood to turn her into a vampire, and Sebastian is her daytime protector and slave. Barnabas persuades Sebastian to take Maggie away from Colin's support as he tries to find a way to stop Roxanne. I really thought the Roxanne vampire storyline was really cool. Uh, I Mm. thought it was a really cool twist. It's something they hadn't done on Dark Shadows before. Mm. Kind of a Countess Dracula. They're doing a a lady vampire, which I thought Mm. was really cool. And she came out of nowhere. Like There was like, who how Roxanne, it's shocking. Roxanne is is the vampire who's preying on Maggie. There are really cool callbacks. Maggie is once again, the victim of a vampire, but this time Barnabas is serving as her protector. Julia is initially suspicious of Barnabas, that Barnabas was the one who who, uh, attacked Maggie. Um, There are so many cool moments with the whole, and then Willie and Julia discovering one of the best episodes of this storyline, perhaps the best episode of the storyline, in my opinion, is when Willie, Loomis, and Julia find the coffin, Roxanne's coffin, and discover that the vampire is in fact Roxanne Drew, and Willie wants to drive the stake through her heart, but Julia... It's a it's kind of a, a heartbreaking moment and shows how much Julia cares for Barnabas too and stops Willie from doing it. It's a really great episode, a uh, classic Dark Shadows episode, I think, that doesn't get enough credit. So thoughts on the whole Sebastian-Roxanne storyline here? Oh, gosh, that's definitely one of the things that really uh, gripped me when uh, this when I was watching this back when it was first on because even though... You know, that feeling of the storyline up to the moment when suddenly it switches back to vampire melodrama, as I put Mm. it in my notes, um, was like, it's very claustrophobic and the walls are closing in Mm -hmm. all these people who, that's like fate, like, you know, you can't fight fate. That's basically, which I guess is very Wagnerian too, Mm. David, to come back to what you were saying. But when the vampire appears at the time it was really baffling like who is this vampire you know i mean i can't really convey just how totally absorbed into dark shadows i would get when i would watch it back when it was first on it Mm -hmm. was like nothing in the outside world would exist i don't think people watch media generally like that anymore because there's always something else going on it seems like people watch media while they're texting their friends or, you know, doing goddess knows what. <laughs> but it was just so absorbing and it was so shocking when Roxanne was revealed to be the vampire. And I feel like that was another thing that they could have 
developed more. Like I would mm. like to have seen a scene where Barnabas and she doesn't just try to like attack him, but they actually have a conversation mm. because obviously in the 1970s storyline, Barnabas was not Roxanne's vampire master. It was somebody else, but we don't know. But she still felt like she had a bond with him. And I think that dialogue is, well, he was also a vampire. And you yeah. would think, like, if you're a vampire and another one walks in the room, there would be, like, some kind of red aura around them. Mm. Yeah, like, Barnabas <laughs> didn't sense that she was a vampire. You would think he would know. Mm. Maybe he was so smitten with her because he Roxanne, you know. He was... with his mind, but something else. Right. Anatomy <laughs> at that point. Who knows? <laughs> Barnabas, but um, yeah, it's it's very effective how they bring that in, and then it does provide more of a counterpoint to the main storyline, which, like you said, it's kind of frustrating because nobody seems able to resist Gerard or these events of fate that are pulling things in on the characters. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, even Stokes even leave he knows that he, if one of the things that happened was he was in europe and he still goes to europe we find out later yeah. to f try yeah. to find the one man who could help them uh it's like it's destined to happen they can't uh they can't escape their fate in one piece of fanfic he goes to europe and the occultist that he meets with there turns out to be count patafi oh my god i love oh, it god. i love it <laughs> <laughs> a double dose of Thayer David. Sign me up. Yes. I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> uh, so, David, uh, thoughts on the uh, Roxanne Drew, Sebastian Shaw? It's, well, I mean, the, the whole thing with Roxanne, it's absolutely astonishing to me that for a show which has drawn quite consciously on all the great classics of Gothic horror fiction, it's taken them over a thousand episodes before they have a glamorous lady vampire who feasts on other ladies, you, 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 which, which really is one of the staples of Gothic fiction. Yeah. You've got Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, you've got yes. George MacDonald's Lilith, you've got Théophile Gautier's The Beautiful Dead. You know, th there are all these wonderful antecedents of the character of yeah. Roxanne, and it's almost as if that you the, the producers, even of a show which had a lot of gay subtext in it, which Dark Shadows does, they thought, oh no, we can't possibly have lesbian vampires on television. No, we won't go there. And then suddenly, after about a thousand episodes, they do. And I I, I remember watching that that first scene where we see the vampire luring Maggie Evans, and we don't even know that it's Roxanne at this stage. We just see this beauty, this very graceful cloaked figure, who I think wasn't even played by Donna Wandry. She was somebody called Liliane Sandor. And I thought, hang on a minute, that's a woman. You just just looking at the silhouetted figure. Are we actually going to have a woman vampire? Oh goody! And I got <laughs> quite excited. So I had kind of guessed that I that it would turn out to be Roxanne. I mean, what? Uh, yeah, I I I agree entirely that more could have been made of the character of Roxanne and also Roxanne's relationship with Barnabas, which is a fascinating one. Maybe the reason Barnabas becomes so besotted with Roxanne is that deep down he knows she is a fellow vampire, even though he doesn't admit it to himself, even though he's not conscious. 
of it. You know, may, maybe that's how the bond between them comes about. And it's something I wish you know, the episodes had explored mm -hmm. a little bit more. Um, I also think as a love interest for, for Barnabas, I think you know, Roxanne Donna Wandry is fascinating because with her short spiky red hair, she looks like David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> she has that really wonderfully yeah. androgynous look, which again, given all the sexual ambiguity around the character of Barnabas and, and, and his relationship with Willie, where you know, I've, I've actually seen production notes where you've got these you, ABC executives tearing their hair, hair out. Please remove any suggestion of a homosexual relationship between Barnabas and Willie. What are they supposed to do? Burn up the whole page? The mind just <laughs> so, Given that you know, there's so much sexual ambiguity around Barnabas anyway, to have him fall in love with this beautiful, androgynous, quite boyish woman is really very clever. So yeah, I, I, I love the relationship between them. I just wish there were more of it. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I, I'm so glad you, you referenced uh, Carmilla. I mean, because the woman vampire is such an archetype. Mm. In, and mm. uh, yeah, I mean, Dark Shadows... Prior to that, we had Angelique, the vamp vampire mm -hmm. Angelique, but I think mm -hmm. Roxanne more closely embodies that because mm -hmm. vamp vampire Angelique was, she was great. I loved vampire Angelique too, but she was more, it, I think Roxanne is closer in tone mm -hmm. to what you're, what you're describing. Oh, there's a connection between Roxanne and Gerard. Uh, mm -hmm. She seems to be aware of what Gerard is doing and Gerard stops Sebastian Shaw from staking Roxanne, which I always thought, well, how did Sebastian even, oh, not staking, shooting her with silver bullets. I don't know, well, Sebastian must, how did he break free of her control because she's a vampire and he's the, the servant of the vampire. So uh, I think he says something when he, when he met about when he met Maggie, he somehow he broke free of Roxanne's control, but that seems odd to me. But anyway, Gerard's ghost appears and stops Sebastian from destroying Roxanne. So Gerard wants Roxanne in play and she shows up at the same time Gerard and Daphne start manifesting. So I wonder if in the if the writers had in mind or if in the first run of events what happened the first time around how did Roxanne and Carrie and Tad possess David and Hallie they talk about how the dogs were howling back in 1840 and these attacks were taking place but Barnabas had not yet traveled to 1840 so who turned Roxanne into a vampire the first was it Gerard mm -hmm. Judah slash Gerard or was there another vampire around do you guys have any thoughts on any of that it's a bit like an Escher drawing or a Möbius strip. <laughs> yeah. It just goes yeah. round and round and round. Yeah. I mean, my take on it was that um, Roxanne was was alive at Collinwood in 1840 before she became a vampire. When she sees the ghost of Gerard in 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 um, in 1970, she knows exactly who this is yeah. and how dangerous he is. Other characters can intuit how dangerous he might be, but Roxanne takes one look at him and she knows because she was there. And again, it's it's one of the many instances where I just don't think they do enough with Roxanne 
can. And I think there's so much of her to explore. By the way, I must confess, I'd completely forgotten that Angelique became a vampire. I, I have such, I, I, I love Angelique. I love Lara Parker. I have such an image of her as a witch. Yes. That, yeah. When she became a vampire, I remember, I just didn't buy into it. I thought, okay, yeah, she's a vampire. Yeah. For how many episodes is that going to last? I didn't buy into her as a witch, the way I, as, as a vampire, the way I do buy into Roxanne. Yes. Yeah. I had completely forgotten that Angelique became a vampire, which is ridiculous, but I did. <laughs> so apologies for that. Oh, no. Uh, well, she was sort of almost, I, I almost, thought she was a sort of a, a hybrid between a witch mm -hmm. and a vampire because yeah. she still had mm -hmm. her witch powers and mm -hmm. cast a reflection in the mirror. And yet she was, I think there was something different about the vampire, Angelique. Uh, Steve, any thoughts on, on Roxanne's original origins? Any speculation on that or... Um, I love the analogy to the Escher yeah. drawing. That's true of so many of the Dark Shadows storylines, yeah. I find. And the in those Warren Art Odson books, by the way, the, the art on that book is like fantastic. Oh, it's amazing. That 1840 yeah. concordance. And what fans don't realize now is how important that book was when it came out, because mm -hmm. There were a few fans who had audio tapes of yeah. the last year episodes and those tapes circulated, but I think in a very limited way in a kind of fanish network. I don't think it was gray market at all, though there might've been some of that because your uncle obviously knew, uh, Danielle, your uncle knew how to get hold of videotapes yeah. of, of the episodes, yep. but nobody had videotapes of the last year. And um, so like Warren Odson wrote that fabulous essay where he speculated on a lot of this plot stuff with yeah. you know, two bodies of Barnabas Collins or something sure. yeah. like that. And I imagine that he also speculated on what was originally going on between Roxanne and Gerard and Barnabas and how the timeline was changed because that was the kind of Mm -hmm. Mine, it's just so such a tragic shame that Warren died when he did. I know. His his theory was that Barnabas was always the one who turned Roxanne into a vampire. Mm -hmm. And that that was Barnabas wasn't aware of it yet because in his timeline he hadn't done it mm -hmm. yet, but that Roxanne knew that he was the one who turned her yeah. into a going, going to turn her mm -hmm. into a vampire and just wasn't saying she'd made that comment about their connection, mm -hmm. which I, I, I tend to lean mm -hmm. uh, uh, toward what you said, Steve, that, that it was just that they were vampires, but Warren's theory is that, I mean, I think it's an interesting theory. It's a compelling mm -hmm. theory that this was going to happen. Barnabas mm -hmm. just didn't know it yet that he was the one who was going to do it, which is very much the MC Escher uh, style storyline you're, you're describing. Um, it's an interesting theory. Uh, yeah, Warren's article, ca uh, Causality at Collinwood, it's a great, he wrote some excellent articles uh, that speculated on the Dark Shadows storylines. I love stuff like that. Um, when I would read those articles, I would just get your imagination going, filling in the blanks, uh, the spackling as a fandom term of kind of filling in the blanks of what really happened here. My yeah. thought is that Gerard was involved in her becoming a vampire. Yeah. I mean, he because she know mm -hmm. there's a connection there between the two of them. So something must have gone down. What about Sebastian Shaw? Thoughts on Sebastian Shaw, the astrologer? I wanted to say I mm -hmm. I actually really like the characters of both Roxanne and Sebastian, mm -hmm. but they're 
I think the fandom is divided on Roxanne. Some people really like Kathy Resch was a big was a big Roxanne fan back mm -hmm. then, and I imagine still is. And for those interested in fanish history, I have to um, advise them to go look on YouTube for your interview with Kathy because it's one of one of the best interviews to me. It was just utterly fascinating to hear Kathy talk about it. But with Sebastian Shaw, he's one of the least popular characters, it seems yeah. like, uh, in the series among the fandom. But I, I think he's fascinating. He wore really groovy letters <laughs> and really groovy jewelry. And um, he just had that look of somebody who was in the occult scene in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. It was like pitch perfect, and um, and I I think uh, Chris Pennock at that time was really very attractive, very telegenic, mm. always very committed in his performance, and um, and I missed him. I'm really sorry he's no longer yeah with mm. us because he had a, a wild sense of humor, and yeah. um, he was really great at playing these very offbeat roles where there was a turn on a dime kind of element of danger. Like all of a sudden you could find him kind of scary because he was a big mm -hmm. guy and his face was not classically handsome, but ruggedly attractive mm. and had that kind of edge of like, it could be sensuality or it could be menacing. And I, felt very happy for him when we moved to 1840 oh, and suddenly yeah. they come up with the ideal role for him of Gabriel. Oh, he was Collins great as Gabriel. And yeah. Whoever was writing it at that point, yeah. just they they found the perfect dialogue. And <laughs> his scenes with Vestoff, who's like to me one of the greatest actresses in the entire show, and with um the all the other characters, they're just marvelous. Yeah. And as for Donna Wandry as Roxanne, her physical presence is just ethereal. Like that's yes. a wonderful comparison with Bowie because just that kind of ethereal fairy tale kind of beauty. It's um, and she also I felt was uh, very grounded as an actor. So I, I again I, she just didn't have very many scenes, you know, yeah. as Roxanne. There's only a, a handful. Of episodes and they could have done so much more with the character but they didn't yeah she's attacking maggie she's preying on maggie because maggie and Seba maggie and sebastian start dating there's a connection that happens between sebastian and maggie uh which is an interesting combination i thought that was kind of cool and unexpected as well because carolyn sees jeb and sebastian and they go in a different direction and have maggie and and the chris penna character uh start dating and uh, roxanne starts preying on maggie and then now barnabas has to protect maggie from the vampire which is and as you pointed out steve in the email you sent me and i i love that too there are a lot of references in this storyline not a lot i shouldn't say a lot some references to earlier storylines in addition to referencing Jeb from the Leviathan storyline but Barnabas reflects on his own attacks on Maggie and how mm. he wanted to make her his and the suffering that he caused her and now he he sees what he did to her uh and all of these great lines which I I 
I think those episodes were written by Joe Caldwell. I've, uh, I'm pretty sure because Joe Caldwell was writing those original Barnabas episodes, a lot of those episodes, and he was back during this storyline. But it was really cool to see Barnabas as sort of the protector. And David, mm. you mentioned, you know, how gothic horror is sort of a, a right wing genre in some ways where it's this, you know, stayed structure here that's being uh, threatened by the other, right? But Dark Shadows kind of makes the other the protagonist of the show in a lot of Absolutely. They, it, it sort of uh, subverts that, which is really fascinating. And Barnabas, the vampire, is protecting Maggie from mm-hmm. a vampire. And I, I think that, and reflecting on his own horrible deeds. So and any thoughts on that before we move on? I I, I, I think it's, you, you, what you've said is really putting your finger on what what Dark Shadows did that I think was unprecedented at that time was creating a vampire with a conscience. I can't think of any vampire before Barnabas Collins who had any sort of conscience or sense of morality. And I do know that in the 1970s when Anne Rice was creating the character of Louis, for example, in Interview with the Vampire, who again was this blood drinker who was just tormented all the time by his conscience. One of her conscious inspirations was Barnabas Collins from Dark Shadows. And I think we really see this humanization of the vampire in in the evolution of Barnabas Collins and in the evolution of his relationship with Maggie Evans. Whereas if we go to those early episodes where he, he's, he's holding her prisoner in the basement and he's got Willie keeping watch on her when he's sleeping in his coffin and then he comes and preys on her. And this is the classic ruthless 19th century vampire behavior. And once we come to these episodes, it really has gone almost 180 degrees where he's become her protector. There's that fascinating moment where Barnabas almost bites Maggie on the Mm -hmm. neck and then Julia comes in and stops it. And, 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 And it does raise the question, which I think is a very real one. If Barnabas is a reformed vampire, as he seems to be in 1970, how does he stay alive? Doesn't he need to drink blood? He's all you know, he's he's no longer being cured of his vampirism, which he was for a while, but he seems to have been reformed to the extent that he's still a vampire, but he no longer drinks blood. How does that work? And I don't think the episodes really answer that question. With Anne Rice, it was, oh, you know, as vampires, we only slay evildoers. And you know, and that works to some extent. But with Barnabas, it's not even that. Mm-hmm. He just seems to stop drinking blood. Right. At least on camera. Exactly. Maybe he's preying on the on the villagers over in Rockport, you know? <laughs> but not maybe not killing them. Maybe he's, mm-hmm. he's just drinking their blood. Uh, but Maggie specifically, I think he's actively resisting. Um, He's always drawn to Maggie Evans. Um, so, uh, uh, Steve, any before we move on, any closing thoughts here on this situation here with Barnabas and Roxanne and Maggie? My wonderful friend Nancy does a holiday card every year that has a Barnabas and Julia theme. Uh-huh. And this year, the shot that she chose was Julia walking in on Barnabas in a clutch with Maggie. <laughs> and... I love how how Grayson just says Barnabas. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and the caption was 
what mistletoe, Barnabas? What mistletoe? And then <laughs> I love you turn it. it over and it's Barnabas going, oh, busted. <laughs> and I it's, I actually laughed out loud when I watched the scene shortly after that, where she goes to the old house to <laughs> ask him, like, how could you do it, Barnabas? And he's yes. like, Julia, I am under complete control of myself <laughs> at all. I'm when, like, when his, Collins, if you were Pinocchio, your nose. Would be totally, yes. <laughs> when has Barnabas ever been in complete control of himself? <laughs> Never. Yeah. <laughs> Which Great. is why we love watching Dark Shadows over and over and over again. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yes. Um, so moving on. And one thing you mentioned earlier too, David, about Amy Jennings not being there, they do reference, they mention. Um, Chris Jennings, Sabrina, mm. and Amy have left Collinsport. Uh, Quentin mentions it as he looks at the full moon, uh, and um, that's uh, that's sad. I would have loved to have seen a, a Dark Shadows. Very rarely has uh, happy endings, but it would have been nice to see some resolution for the Chris Jennings storyline. But mm. I guess they were keeping the door open in case down the road, you know, Don Briscoe maybe would would have come back at some point, but that would have been nice uh, to see because he was such an important character for so long. And so was uh, Amy. Um, so, okay. So moving on here, Julia finds design plans by a Quentin Collins, a great uncle relative of Quentin in 1840 for a stairway into time. Elizabeth talks with Julia about one of the clues which predicts that Carolyn will sing a song. She says that Carolyn cannot sing. Carolyn starts to believe she has second sight and insists on giving a concert. She sings uh, a song, The Fourth Omen, uh, which of course is uh, the, the Pansy Faye song, I'm gonna dance for you. Uh, the ghost of Gerard lures David and Hallie to Rose Cottage and they become possessed by the spirits of Tad Collins and Carrie Stokes from 1840. They hold a ceremony that causes Daphne to come back to life. Daphne attempts to protect them from Gerard. Barnabas and Julia find the location of Rose Cottage. Gerard causes it to burn with them inside. They manage to escape as the building is destroyed by fire, the fifth omen. Um, Gerard then kills David and Hallie, the sixth and final omen, and, and he kills Daphne as well, and summons uh, a, a mob of zombie pirates back to life to destroy Collinwood. As Collinwood is destroyed by the rampaging zombies, the stairway into time appears. Julia uses it to escape the ensuing chaos. However, the zombies manage to prevent Barnabas from reaching her. Uh, I mean, this is just, this is a synopsis that I pulled off of Wikipedia. There are a lot of details missing, like Gerard waving the green flag three times mm -hmm. to, to cause the zombies uh, to rise. Quentin loses his mind when he finds the dead children and, and Daphne dying. It does feel like it rushes to a conclusion here. I wonder if the storyline was meant to be longer originally and maybe Dan Curtis said, well, let's wrap it up and go to the past. You know, uh, I wonder, I have to wonder about that. Uh, Steve, go for it. Um, one of the things in the background that occurred to me after reading through my own notes was um, what makes all this get started. And mm -hmm. so it's very strange to me that Hallie comes to live at Collinwood because her parents die in some kind of car crash. Yeah. And I found myself wondering, of course, Night of Dark Shadows ends with characters being killed in a car crash that's caused by a malevolent supernatural spirit. And I found myself wondering, did Gerard somehow cause that mm. the death of her parents? Because oh. it seemed to me that it was her coming to live at Collinwood since she was the reincarnation of Carrie Stokes that somehow started it all. Yeah. Going, and she's the first one 
she was the catalyst by the Mm -hmm. spirit of Carrie and it just makes the mind real to think of a spirit that is so powerful that it could cause all those things to happen and it kind of is like through like a thing that's relatively minor causing a car accident in which two people were Mm -hmm. killed Mm -hmm. for them that wasn't minor um it like as each thing happens it kind of snowballs and then I think it is actually effective dramatically that it all accelerates very yeah. quickly mm-hmm. to the conclusion. But I think it's quite likely, as you said, that Dan was like, oh, this isn't working. The fans are running in complaining. They don't like it. So we're going to go to the next act three was 1840. I would love to know just when they plotted all this out in one of the books um, KLS or somebody says there was a 50 hour uh, yes. writers meeting where they plotted all of this mm-hmm. and it would be interesting to know just when that meeting occurred and how far ahead they had outlined things yeah because I, I get the sense that they didn't have the Judah Zachary aspect mm. planned until they got to I don't maybe I might could be wrong but there's absolutely no hint at whatsoever of the Judah Zachary aspect to this so I I don't know. Um, my guess is Dan Curtis saw the the thing that couldn't die, the movie, the thing that couldn't die, uh, and said, I, "I like that movie. Let's do that." Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So the the storyline just starts heading toward uh, this uh, conclusion. I do. I also feel the writers may may have been right because I noticed there was a even a continuity. This is a short storyline. And even within the storyline itself, there's a, there's a continuity error. Earlier in the storyline, Quentin is reading the diary of the original Quentin, Quentin the first. And one of the lines in the diary is, uh, today we bury Carrie and Tad. But then later in the storyline, Gerard tries to kill Quentin and bury him alive. Mm-hmm. And Carrie says, it's happening just how it did before. First, he killed Quentin, then he killed us. And so, mm-hmm. wait, Quentin's diary said, wrote about the two of you uh, being buried. So that that seems odd to me. I don't I don't know. It's such a, a short storyline. And yet there was that that error took place even within that short frame of time. So maybe they were rushing to get to 1840 at that point. And they, they switched the year from 1839 to 1840. Mm-hmm. Like initially, all the diary entries are in 1839. And yes. then they're in 1840. So yeah, yeah, some something was well, there's so much I, I always write these things off if there's so much time travel that starts happening in dark shadows that time is becomes very fluid <laughs> we want to timey-wimey all timey-wimey yes yes uh we also have references to the to the java queen and things like that and gerard's pirate crew and we know we find out in 1840 that gerard uh, was real name was ivan miller uh changed his name in london uh, he had committed numerous crimes in many parts of the world, embezzling in Paris, gun running in Sicily, smuggling in North Africa. He was held on suspicion of murder by the Portuguese, although the charges were dropped and Gerard was released because the body disappeared uh, mysteriously. So Gerard was a pirate and he is still connected to this pirate crew of zombies that he's resurrecting. And there's this whole bit about how the, they're going to wave the flag three times and call the crew. So they're still I might I, maybe uh, Judah Zachary resumed uh, his piracy for a short time. 
<laughs> and gathered the crew together and brought them all into his coven. I mean, why is Judah Zachary connected to this pirate crew in the in the present day? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I'm going off the deep end here with all of this, but um, thoughts on how this storyline wraps up, I guess, uh, or and anything on Carolyn as well with Letitia, since this is the last time we're going to see Carolyn uh, too as a character. Well, David, you go first. Oh, go for uh, it. David. Sorry, I, I just wanted to say I'm going to have to go in just a few minutes because sure. the building I'm working from actually okay. closes at nine o'clock. Okay. Um, but um, you know, as as for how the storyline wraps up, Stephen, I was fascinated by what you were saying about um, uh, about Hallie and how she comes to the house because if you read Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla. That's how the vampire woman comes into the house. She's in a carriage that crashes just outside the castle, and she's this little waif who needs somewhere to go, and the family takes her in. So again, this is you know, this is within the main line of of, of classic Gothic horror. Uh, as for the way the story winds up, I have to admit, I was absolutely flabbergasted at the sight of Barnabas Collins being attacked by all these zombies. Cause I just sat there thinking, hang on a minute, can the undead kill the undead? You know, there was something there I, I, I found <laughs> deeply, deeply bizarre. How could zombies actually hurt a vampire and vice versa? Um, so, I really wanted to see where that would go, and then it didn't. We wind up back in 1840. Um, yeah, that's that's really all I have to say about the, fi the final section. Well, if I don't get the chance to, to do so, I want to thank you again, David, for joining oh. us. I love yes. your insights. Thank yeah. you very much for taking the time to do this, David. Uh, and Thank Steve you well. so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh my goodness, it was a it was a pleasure, and you as well, Steve. It's great, always great talking with you. Um, I, I just to to address what you said. I always wished we had seen what happened to uh, when Julia left. I I always figured Barnabas uh, just used his vampiric strength and threw the zombies. I mean, the zombies are mm. powerful as well, but maybe Barnabas mm. threw them all off and turned into a bat and flew away or just dematerialized mm. because, you know, they don't, they don't address it later when we come back mm. briefly from 1840 and see Barnabas talking with Professor Stokes. They don't ever address what happened to the zombies. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe Barnabas... Have zombies got any blood for a vampire to drink? <laughs> that was one question I kept asking. <laughs> I think the film The Zombies of Moratau was definitely something that somebody had watched because in that film at the end the zombies do turn into skeletons which happened in the Leviathan yes. uh, storyline and um as I I think whenever I watch the final episode the destruction of Collinwood episode I just go back to watching it as as a child and just being so, it was so apocalyptic, like a primal yes. scene of Collinwood, which I had so much love for being destroyed by these creatures. Mm. I just literally couldn't believe what I was seeing. And now, of course, when I watch it, I'm watching it that way on one side. And on the other side, I'm like, oh, God, that giant thing is going to like fall over. <laughs> yeah. and, and like all this debris is going to fall on top of everyone. And <laughs> I think that might have actually been a mistake. Like it wasn't supposed to happen quite like that. No. And then that something gets thrown, the towel or something. 
It's a oh, cloth gets, gets thrown, thrown on one side. <laughs> on his face, and he rips it off. Yeah, and he rips uh, it off. Yeah, it was. It is cool seeing zombies invade Collinwood. That is a pretty, pretty awesome uh, sight to behold. Uh, though I think it's still really cool. I wish Louis Edmonds had been here. I think he was in. Actually, was in Europe during this storyline, and I wish he had been part of the storyline. Roger, it would have been cool yeah. to see Roger how Roger Collins uh, would react to all of all of these goings on. I just have to mention for people who are curious on the Dark Shadows wiki, they actually point out that a couple of the same actors who played zombies during the Leviathans came back to play zombies again. Yes. Yeah. For this storyline. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting how Quentin gets buried alive by Jeb Hawks, and then he gets buried alive again. Yes. By, um, yeah. Gerard. And it that those parts do feel kind of like, oh, they're like playing the greatest hits of Dark Shadows. The, yes, yeah. There. And I wonder if Quentin would have died. Would his portrait have protected him? Would he have just been buried alive, suffocating for all time? Which is a pretty horrifying thought, you know. Can, does the painting protect Quentin from physical harm? Yeah, I think absolutely. both of you. I'm afraid I'm going to have to go. Otherwise, okay. zombies are going to lock me in the building, which <laughs> would be fun. So, thank you both so much again. Bye, David. And thank you. Thank you very much. Good night. Take care. Good, Good night. night, Stephen. Good night. Bye bye. Good night. Take care. Bye bye. All right, we'll we'll wrap things up here, uh, Steve. Um, yeah, I I wonder if the portrait. Quentin's painting, because we see a, a part in 1897 where uh, Patofi slashes Quentin's face with a That's brandy right. glass, and then the painting starts to bleed instead of Quentin. So yep. I wonder if he would have not died, uh, which is pretty horrifying. <laughs> I just thought of being buried alive for all time. Yeah, I don't know. He's in the coffin for like two hours and he doesn't die. Yeah. So it does yeah. suggest that he has at least much more ability to survive something like that than an ordinary person would yeah and the painting start the heartbeat comes from the painting i've mentioned in the episode i did with ray i didn't think we saw the painting again but we do see it uh one more yeah. time here with uh the painting the heartbeat coming from the painting to uh, alert them to him being in danger yeah this is I a mean funny thing whenever i see the painting of the old quentin <laughs> it re reminds me of bill the cat in dudesbury <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you ever. Uh, I'm familiar with that. it. Yeah. the cat. He had like one eye. One eye was bleeding, and the other eye was kind of not there, and right. the tongue was sticking. <laughs> when I was watching it the other night, I was like, "Oh, build a cat." Build a cat. I love. I love it. <laughs> oh, Letitia Fay. I just want to briefly ask you. They may also make this whole thing uh, about the Pansy song. Pansy, her singing yeah. Pansy song, and then Barnabas recognizing uh, the song when Julia tells him about it and, and saying there must be some connection there and that it, this is going to lead to them thwarting Gerard somehow. And they never make anything of that either. So I assume Letitia Fay is meant to be some ancestor of pansies or something, or she's connected to, to pansy in, in some way. Maybe pansy was Letitia's reincarnation. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's not consistent in the way that they handled it during the summer of 1970. There's scenes where Letitia is the dominant personality. Carolyn mm -hmm. is there. And then yeah. suddenly it's Carolyn, but she has second sight, but she's interacting as Carolyn, yes. not as Letitia. And I think it was just 
because as seems to have been the case during every storyline, they were, although I think the episodes were being written in order, they were being taped in a very spotty kind of way. And I never find that out until I go and look on Dark Shadows Wiki at the taping dates versus the broadcast dates. But that's why none of the actors could ever remember any of the storylines because sure. none of it must have, they must have just had to focus on this day's script, we're going to do this. Not yeah. like, well, wait, why, you know, like, am I still enthralled to Count Patafi or not? Because it was all taped out of order. Yeah. Um, but I personally think, having just watched it, that Carolyn was the reincarnation of Letitia. I don't know about Pansy. Maybe those were successive incarnations. Um, and I, I think they needed to clarify that, but they didn't. I think they gave uh, Nancy to do another Cockney role because she'd been such a success. Right, right. As uh, yeah. Pansy Faye, which I loved the stuff oh. with Pansy, oh, but again, totally. some fans don't like it. So, Well, again, greatest hits of Dark Shadows. Like you said, you know, like, oh, this people, I, 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 some fans thought it was too, too much. I love her as Pansy. I thought she was so much fun uh, as Pansy, but I think you're right. I know the greatest hits of Dark Shadows pulling things that they liked the first time around and bring bringing them back and reimagining them in, in a different way. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts on summer of 1970 uh, before we wrap things up? Well, I, I still think it's a really fascinating storyline. I mean, I think the weakest part of it for me is how the um, how Quentin's obsession with Daphne kind of it kind of stagnates I don't see it really being written in a very interesting way and and it becomes comical in some of the later scenes because he's asking her you know tell me this or tell me that and she's yeah. still a ghost and she can't talk and um and that's unfortunate but once she gets brought back as a human and she can talk their scenes together are really quite touching I thought they played it really well and I, I don't know, I guess I feel like no matter how much I point out of the things that I like about a storyline like this, the fans who already made up their minds that they hate it or they wish it weren't there, or they're not going to change their minds. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, well, so, you know, sometimes people will uh, give things uh, another chance after listening to some different perspectives on it, hopefully, ideally. Um, I mean... I think we both agree there there's something to love in every Dark Shadows storyline. And I think, you know, there are some really great things happening in this storyline. It might not be the most popular storyline of, of the series, but I think it's uh it's a cool one. Or David kind of poo-poos the idea of of ghosts at one point. And so well, you of all people, David, should not be. <laughs> Although I, I do love the moment where he tells. He wants to put the, he makes the doll, they make a doll of Barnabas and they mm -hmm. want to put it in the dollhouse and Carrie, uh, Hallie says, he, he, how can he do anything against Gerard? And yeah. David says, Barnabas is different. Barnabas, uh, is different. Barnabas is different. He's different. And so uh, David on some level, maybe because at one point he had an awareness that Barnabas was one of the undead, but is maybe well, I assume his memory was wiped by Barnabas at some point, but maybe on never some saw it. It was never yeah. resolved. No, no, but on some level, he knows that Barnabas. There's something about Barnabas that Barnabas could help them in in some way. So there are moments like that. There are really interesting callbacks too to mm -hmm. um, 
when they become possessed by uh, Carrie and Tad and Barnabas says, I'll play along. I'll play the game with you too. And ask who David's mother is and what her name is and uh, who his yeah. previous governess was and things like that. Uh, so there's some really fun little references like that. Victoria Winters is actually referenced directly with the, when Daphne comes back to life to, for the, yes. uh, so they're nice callbacks to previous storylines mm -hmm. uh, too. So, uh, yeah. and it's, it's cool. It's a, it's an eerie, like you said, claustrophobic storyline. I like that. And a sense of doom. And I, maybe that's part of why fans don't like this storyline because there is a sense of they're doomed. This is the act two. Um, things are not going to be resolved. They are not going to be saved despite the fact that Barnabas and Julia know what's going to happen. Collinwood mm -hmm. and its inhabitants are doomed. So maybe that's part of why fans are uncomfortable with this storyline. Mm -hmm. You know, another um, element that um, was very present in this storyline that uh, I hadn't really been that aware of before was the use of video editing. Oh, yes. And I noted there's a credit for, in almost every episode for video editors. And it was mm -hmm. a two-person job. It was always two guys. But it would change from one day to the other. So I guess that the guys who did it would be given yeah. notes, you know, edit this and edit that. But it's often quite subtle um, how they did the editing and it was very needed for certain key moments of the storyline. So that's something now, whenever I re uh, hear an interview or read one um, where people go, well, we never edited on Dark Shadows. They're like, well, starting in 1969, they were using editing, but they were using it selectively if somebody made a major goof, they would just keep rolling, but they wouldn't necessarily fix it in the editing. Yeah, probably the technology improved over the course of the series so that they were able to do it more affordably and faster uh, because they were definitely doing it during 1970 parallel time. Uh, right. It was clearly they were doing some post-production on the show at that point. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it, there, it changed. And Another thing, I, I keep thinking of things like you called out uh, Sebastian's costume, uh, his outfit, and it was very like 70s occult. A lot of the fashions in Dark Shadows started to change uh, as it went along too, because the early, the first couple of years of Dark Shadows, it could have been uh, a 1930s or 1940s horror movie. You know, they were all wearing suits or these formal dresses and things like that. Um, I guess, well, Carolyn was wearing the mini skirts and stuff and Vicky, but for the most part, a lot of the older characters were dressed, you know, in these more uh, formal looking outfits. But as it went into 1970, you started to see more very colorful 70s colors and styles infused into the show, perhaps to the detriment of some characters like I, David's outfits and during the summer of 1970 were kind of like, ooh, that's <laughs> a bit of an eyesore at times the with some of his, <laughs> yeah, the sweater vest, yeah, yeah, and these sort of, you know, avocado greens and things like that that starts, <laughs> we start to see show up, like, oh yes, the 70s have arrived, uh, but, um, <laughs> but they do embrace, I think, more the modern styles i think as it went into 1970 it, it seems yes i loved laura parker's um peter max dress in mm -hmm. uh, 
as parallel time Angelique. That was like, really oh, yeah. Crazy. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I did not love uh, Quentin, parallel time Quentin's wide uh, ties. Oh, God. <laughs> and those jackets. The jackets. Oh, yeah. It's like, can we go back to black and white, please? Or David Selby. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like, why would you, you have David Selby. Why would you put him in that outfit? (laughs) But anyway, but it's parallel time fashion, you know? Uh, Anyway, (laughs) they still dress that way in parallel time from what I understand. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Steve. Well, thank you very much for for talking with me today. I uh, I really enjoyed chatting with you and with David. And uh, folks, if you are listening to this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to uh, the, the podcast if you're listening on audio via Apple Podcasts please subscribe and please do rate and review the podcast. As of this recording, I think we're at 59 ratings right now. Uh, and I, I, I'd love to see it, see it get to, to a hundred ratings. We're not, we're not at a hundred ratings yet, but if you, if you get a chance, give us a rating, give us a review. And uh, also we have a YouTube channel. This episode will feature a video version uh, as several of the episodes have lately. So if you uh, like watching the podcast on YouTube, give us a subscription, give us a like. This podcast is all about celebrating dark shadows, keeping dark shadows alive or undead. Uh, so please uh, keep keep the ball rolling. Keep, uh, keep listening and thank you for listening. And for as long as they lived... The dark shadows never truly vanished, for there will always be terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.